Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you have joined us. A little later in the show, we're going to meet the team behind Detroit Public Television's new show, about the Great Lakes. It debuts tonight at 7.30. We're going to talk with Sandra Swoboda, who is the program director of Great Lakes Now, as well as Ward Detweiler, who is the host. But first, there is a new outbreak of the measles unfolding around the nation and also right here in southeast Michigan. And it's fueled, at least in part, by a conspiracy theory. Parents who believe, against the evidence that science has to offer, that vaccinations are more dangerous than deadly disease outbreaks are invigorating a debate that's really off kilter because fact is taking a backseat to sheer belief. And that's not the only place we see this happening. From fake celebrity deaths to chemtrails, there are lots of people who seem to believe that media, experts, and authorities are lying to all of us and that only the suckers go along with convention. Why do people subscribe to these things? Why do they hold so tightly to them? And how might we open a dialogue with people who seem to believe in something that defies all known facts and evidence? That's where we want to begin the conversation today with the idea of conspiracy theories. Conspiracy theories that you might believe and conspiracy theories that drive conversations that we're trying to have about really important things. Where do these conspiracy theories come from? And why do some people gravitate toward them? Why do some people believe these conspiracies over overwhelming evidence that they aren't true? We want to hear from you for sure about your favorite conspiracy theories, the ones that you personally believe to be true, even if it's something silly. Uh, Even if you don't believe in a conspiracy theory, which one fascinates or amuses you? And why do you think people believe things that fly in the face of all available evidence or fact? As always, the number on the phones here is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. And joining us now to talk more about Why People Believe Conspiracy Theories is Michael Wood. He is a professor of psychology at the University of Winchester in the UK. Michael Wood, welcome to Detroit Today. Hi, thanks for having me on. So let's start with this idea. Why do people believe conspiracy theories? Um, So this is a big topic, um, and there's no one answer. Um, There's a lot of different factors that go into it, and to some extent it depends on the theory that we're talking about. But in general, people will believe conspiracy theories for the same reasons that they believe other things. Um, So, for instance, I might think that um, a certain political candidate is a good fit and that I want to vote for them. And by that same token, I believe in certain conspiracy theories, perhaps that uh, might agree with that proposition and, and you know, say that uh, my favorite candidate's opponent, I might think, is, uh, you know, some sort of uh, evil sleeper agent or something like that. The, the, the conspiracy theories that people end up believing tend to fit with the other things that they believe, their ideology, their worldview, their religion, and, and so on. Now, in terms of why people tend to believe conspiracy theories at all, rather than just, you know, which ones, some of that is down to personality. Um, some of that is down to uh, thinking style. Some of it is uh, cultural. You know, you see tremendous variation across the world in, in terms of how seriously people take conspiracy theories. If you go to someplace like uh, Jordan, you know, you think that 
the U.S. has a lot of conspiracy theories in it. But man, if you go to the Middle East, something like 60 or 70 percent of people in, in certain countries think that 9-11 was an inside job. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's an awful lot of factors that go into it. And there's, there's no one answer. Um, basically, everywhere we look, there's some small contribution c- coming from a, just about any factor you could imagine. And what is it about human psychology that allows us to dismiss things like facts and evidence in favor of what we believe, even when that evidence is overwhelming. I saw a a report on a study recently that talked about how stubbornly people adhere to the first facts they hear, for instance, Uh, and Mm -hmm. even when presented with the truth that maybe those facts weren't so, uh, they're, they're reluctant to let go of it and, and believe something else. What is it about our brains that drive us to do that? So some of it is you can think of it like inertia. You know, If you're moving in a specific direction, you need some force to be applied to make you stop and start moving another direction instead. And in terms of psychology, it's, it's very similar. You know, We don't turn our thoughts on a dime. We don't completely change our beliefs about the world every time we hear a new fact that might go against it or, or, or something that, that might be a fact. We have specific worldviews and we have specific beliefs and, and shifting those takes a long time, especially if we've built so much of uh, what we think of as ourselves. You know, our sense of self derives in large part from the things that we believe and the people who um, we believe them with. And yeah, turning on a dime is just not something that we as humans are good at. And if we were good at that, I, I kind of wonder what our behavior would look like because we'd just be really inconsistent. You know, people have this need for, for consistency and, and need to, to be the same person today that they were yesterday and to have some sense of continuity. And so changing your mind really quickly is just not something that, that humans tend to be very good at. It's not that it's impossible. You know, people change their minds all the time. And, and this is not specific to conspiracy theories. But it's certainly, you know, a, a general tendency that we can observe over uh, a, a lot of different domains. So, so how dangerous is it that people believe these things that aren't true? I mean, I, in the opening, I talked about the measles outbreak that we are seeing nationwide and here in southeast Michigan. Uh, that is a particularly dangerous conspiracy theory, I feel, that's driving that. But not everything, I think, falls into that category. For instance, there's people who believe that uh, John Kennedy was not shot just by a single gunman. Uh, That's sort of a benign uh, conspiracy theory, I guess, at this point. Yeah, arguably it is. Um, I mean, with these, there are some conspiracy theories saying, you know, vaccines are poisonous or, um, you know, uh, climate change is fake or, um, you know, some like the, some ethnic group is conspiring to to infiltrate the country or to take over the world or to do whatever. Those are obviously harmful. Arguably, you could say that the ones that don't have any direct connection to a um, you know harmful behavior or harmful stereotypes or attitudes, even those are arguably harmful as well because they point you in the direction of a a more conspiratorial worldview where you essentially start to see the world as a place where you know, a place that's essentially governed by all these conspiracies. And at the same time, it's important not to dismiss the idea of the conspiracy theory as something that could possibly be true, because people do conspire. You know, we shouldn't take away the message that you should always trust everything that you're told and always believe what people in authority say, because that's also very unhealthy. Um, You know, this is the problem with conspiracy theories, because there's something 
true about the idea that we should be suspicious of people who hold power. And that's a very healthy thing. Um, but it can lead, in, in some circumstances, to a very unhealthy place, as we've seen. Uh, one example is Project Sunshine, in which the U.S. government stole parts of dead bodies to do radioactive testing and took samples from recently deceased babies and children without permission. Uh, I mean, that's the kind of thing that doesn't happen all the time, I, I would imagine. But when it does, it really reinforces the idea in people's minds that these horrible things can happen and therefore uh, maybe you ought to be more suspicious about them happening more frequently. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that that's something that gets sort of neglected in, in some of the discussion around conspiracy theories is that people say, well, conspiracy theories are bad and they're often irrational and they, they tend to be wrong and they lead people to do bad things. And that can certainly be true. But this is not simply a matter of public, you know, mental hygiene. You know, we shouldn't just go and wag our fingers at people who think that, you know, that there's something fishy about the Kennedy assassination, because to some extent, whether people believe a conspiracy theory depends on how they view the people who are implicated in it. And if we have, you know, a government and a society that's worthy of a high level of trust, and that we trust because they do trustworthy things and they act like trustworthy people, then conspiracy theories tend to go away. Mm. Uh, they never fully disappear. But um, there's something, I, I think, that can, uh, a prevalence of conspiracy theory says about the society in which it arises. Mm. We're talking about conspiracy theories, and my guest is Michael Wood. He's a professor of psychology at the University of Winchester in the UK. We'd love to hear from you during this segment about what your favorite conspiracy theory might be. Is there one that you personally believe to be true? And even if you don't believe one, which conspiracy theory fascinates or amuses you? And why do you think people believe things that fly in the face of all available evidence or facts? Uh, also, tell us about how you try to open dialogues with people who push pseudoscience or information that you know to be false. Have you found productive ways to be able to talk with folks who believe things that aren't true. Uh, as always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. Michael on Facebook says, normally I try to stay away from the big conspiracies, especially something like 9-11, because so much can be absurd. Yet when it comes to that incident, two things strike me in conspiracy territory financial activities, and lack of military actions on that day. I can't logically explain it. That's a great example of uh, the doubt that people might have about conspiracy theories, but then the doubt about doubt that always creeps in. Rhonda on Twitter says public health must own its own role in why many people, especially people of color, don't trust them. There is a long history of abusing and mistreating people, and those stories are passed down and reinforced by public health personnel at various points along the way. Rhonda, really great point about power. Uh, let's go to the phones here. Uh, Malcolm, Malcolm in Detroit. What's on your mind? Well, thanks for taking my call, Steve. Yeah, so, go ahead. I uh, just wanted to speak to that whole idea of people of color and a historical mistrust. You know, we all know about the Tuskegee experiment, and so I think that gave a lot of African-Americans a historical precedent for their mistrust. Mm -hmm. And I think also with the onset of the AIDS epidemic in the 80s, people said that that was attributed to an African monkey, and people felt like that was a continued demonization of Africa. But the, the hidden goal was to uh, get rid of, you know, homosexuals. 
Yep, I think we'll so oh, go ahead. If you fast forward to today with the measles outbreak, I think that that's more rooted into some would say some uh, some the mainstream thinking as relates to you know I want to say the the white the white right, but mm-hmm. that's a different uh, history, right? And so, but there's some conflation now because like people of color in America feel like we have a historical precedent for the mistrust, but this current thing with measles is like it just doesn't jive the same way. Mm-hmm. So just speak to that if you can. Yeah. Uh, uh, Malcolm, thanks very much for the call and that really great insight. Michael Wood, respond to what what uh, he's saying and what uh, Rhonda on Twitter was talking about. Yeah, I, I mean that's a great point. This this kind of relates back to what I said earlier about um, you, you know the general level of trust in the society, and and that comes from somewhere. You know, when people are very suspicious, there's often a reason for for that suspicion, and especially among communities of color, things like the Tuskegee experiments. And, you know, any number of other sort of abuses that have occurred throughout history. People have uh, reason to be somewhat suspicious about these things. And we've seen lots of repercussions of that, especially in communities of color. If you look back during the early 2000s, sort of mid-2000s, there were a lot of studies about um, sort of medical treatments, especially in the African-American community. Um, Are people, um, you know, using um, condoms to try to stop um, spread of HIV? And, and what's the role of conspiracy theories in that? And, and that's actually another place where we see that, that the mistrust um, is sort of, you know, wherever it comes from, it, it can lead to a bad place and people not taking their meds or people not, um, you know, uh, taking preventative health measures like, like condom usage. Um, and, and, yeah, to some extent, having that penetrate into, you know, the white mainstream and, and sort of the, the dominant um, sort of uh, ethnic subculture is, is kind of interesting to see how that, that spreads. And, and the language that we use about it, you know, we say that all these things spread and they're, they're like a virus. The way that we, we medicalize um, some of this kind of discourse is, mm-hmm. is also really interesting as well. So it's super important to acknowledge the, the history there, absolutely. And, and, that, and, and how some of these historical theories and historical incidents have, have kind of affected the way that we think about these things. Yeah, before we get back to the callers, Michael, I want to get you to talk some about the man who is president of the United States right now, who uh, is a conspiracy theorist. I mean, I think there's no other way really to describe Donald Trump uh, than as somebody who believes a lot of things that there is little or no factual evidence for. Uh, and he's also now taken to using the platform that he has as president to spread those kinds of theories and foment that kind of uh, doubt about truth. I wonder what you make of the effect that that may be having on conspiracy theories and their popularity right now. Yeah, one of the things that we know from work in political science is that um, conspiracy theories are a lot like other points of view in that people will believe them to varying extents based partly on whether people who are in power tend to express those same views. So people look to the elites of society, as you might call them, um, for cues as to what's acceptable to say and what's acceptable to believe and and ways in which it's acceptable to act. Um, And Donald Trump certainly, as you say, tends to endorse a lot of conspiracy theories and arguably more than, than most politicians, I would say. And so having someone who's sort of using that kind of discourse, who's, who's in power, in a position of power. Um, yeah, that's, that's 
I, I would be surprised if that had no effect on conspiracy theories. I think it makes them sort of more socially acceptable. But at the same time, as you said, he, he's always kind of been into conspiracy theories. One of the first ways that he made a sort of big entry into national level politics was with the birther conspiracy mm-hmm. theory, saying that Barack Obama wasn't born in the U.S. And that, I think, speaks to the fact that there was already some appetite for this. You know, most people believe at least one conspiracy theory, um, probably several. And, and I think that Trump played into that in a way that a lot of politicians haven't. Uh, again, let's uh, keep the phones going here. 313-577-1019. Uh, Layla in Detroit, you're up next. Welcome to the show. Hi. Um, thanks for taking my call. Mm-hmm. I, I guess I'm a little confused now because on the one hand, um, I thought I heard you say that, um, you know, people are, you know, wary of knowledge from people in power or information from people in power. Now we're saying that um, people in power tend to make conspiracy theories more socially acceptable. I guess I guess it can go both ways. My comment has to do with maybe looking at it from another perspective, which is that, you know, if we think of the old trope, you know, knowledge is power, um, maybe people tend to believe or uh, keep their conspiracy theories close to their uh, chest, so to speak, mm-hmm. um, because it, it, is, it does give them a sense of power. And it is, in a way, sort of arresting power from those who tell them otherwise. Um, so if we take, for example, the, um, the vaccination issue, you know, for people of color, you know, this is arresting power back from those who might abuse hmm. that power and have abused it in the past. Hmm. So I, I, I just wondered what you thought about that, like uh, keeping what we think is what we know um, in order to empower ourselves. Right. And I'll take my uh, off the line. Layla, that's a really, really great question. Uh, Michael Wood, uh, what do you make of that? Yeah, so, I, I mean, there's power and there's power, basically, is, is the answer. Um, Trump has a very populist sort of, style of of rhetoric. And even though he's the president, he often talks as though he's sort of representing the the downtrodden against these elites and the deep state and and all these other people who are sort of holding the secret sneaky power. And there's a particular style of conspiracy theories that you see used by populist regimes that's very similar to that. So if you look back at, you know, to take the very uh, cliched example in Nazi Germany, if you look at Nazi Germany, a lot of conspiracy theories about how, you know, maybe they're in power and maybe they're very, um, you know, they, they have a lot of clout and they can do a lot of the things that they want to do. But at the same time, there are these sneaky Jewish merchants who are off and, you know, they're controlling the world financial system and they're controlling, you know, the, the media and they're controlling banks and, and, and so on. And, and so there's always this sort of enemy, whether it's invisible or not, it's it somehow got this, this power. And there is a sense that, that you're taking power back by recognizing this. You know, we have studies showing that people who um, are into conspiracy theories tend to have this sort of um, psychological need to feel like they've got um, one up on everyone else, <laughs> that they're sort of unique or they, they possess some, some answers that others don't. Um, but I, I do want to speak to one of the, the last things in that call, which was about um, vaccination. And I, I think that actually vaccination rates tend to be lower in the fairly affluent white communities. Mm. Among communities of color, vaccination rates are actually um, relatively high. Quite I high, think. Sure. Uh, yeah. yeah. 
Okay. Uh, Michael Wood, professor of psychology at the University of Winchester in the UK. Thanks very much for being here with us on Detroit Today. Thanks a lot. All right. We're going to continue this conversation next and uh, get a new guest into the mix here who's going to talk about how we talk to people who believe things that are not true, how we get actual dialogue going when facts aren't part of the conversation. Also, make sure to tune in tomorrow's show as part of WDET's Crossing the Line series. We're going to look at suburban sprawl in Canton and across Metro Detroit and why we keep allowing developers to expand into undeveloped areas. Stay with us on Detroit Today. listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you joined us. We're talking about conspiracy theories, conspiracy theories that we might believe, conspiracy theories that we might hear from people that we know and be skeptical of, conspiracy theories that are driving things like the measles outbreak that we see nationwide and here in Southeast Michigan. Parents who believe that vaccinations are more dangerous than the spread of a potentially deadly disease. We want to talk now about how we talk with people who believe things that may not be true. How do we have a dialogue when facts and evidence aren't the centerpiece of the conversation and may not enter it at all? Joining us now to help us through that conversation is David Ludden. He's a professor of psychology at Georgia Gwinnett College. Uh, he is the author of the textbook, The Psychology of Language, an Integrated Approach. He also maintains the blog, Talking Apes, How Natural Selection Reprogrammed the Brain for Language. David Ludden, welcome to Detroit Today. Well, thank you for having me. So let's start with how we can open dialogue with people who subscribe to conspiracy theories that fly into the face of all evidence and facts. How do we talk with these folks? Well, uh, I think you've got to approach it the same way that you approach uh, religious topics and political topics. Um, you're usually not going to change people's uh, minds by, you know, uh, by, by arguments um, when, it, when it comes to like a religious discussion or a political discussion. And I think the same thing happens with, uh, with, with conspiracy theories. Um, I think if you're just approached by someone and you'd rather not hear the, the, the conspiracy theory, I think you do sort of like what I do when a missionary comes knocking on my door. I say, I respect your beliefs and I expect you to respect mine as well. And hope that that kind of ends the conversation and move it on to something else. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, it's really very difficult to, to convince uh, people who believe in a conspiracy theory that they are wrong because they actually have a lot of what they consider to be facts and evidence uh, supporting their point of view. Mm. And they probably actually know more about it than you do. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I want to go to a caller here who I think has mm -hmm. a really great point for for this uh, particular part of the conversation. Uh, Raymond in Ypsilanti. Uh, go ahead, Raymond. Hi, how are you? Good, how are you? Uh, I've just become in love with uh, YouTube, and um, there's a lot of free stuff on there regarding a lot of different topics that goes to developing facts that people must look at before they draw conclusions. Um, the major program that I'm looking at is the assassination of JFK. And there's just a ton of evidence um, of who was involved in the conspiracy and why he died. Hmm. 
I speak to a lot of people. I'm an attorney by trade, matter of fact, and uh, it's sort of difficult to deal with some people, uh, and also a conversational group that meets every Saturday morning in Ypsilanti, uh, to talk to people who will refuse to look at facts and change their minds about specific circumstances. For mm. example, in the JFK, people believe that uh, there was a lone assassin, but now as the evidence comes out, there were multiple assassins, and uh, we and- will not accept and, and so, Raymond, talk to me a little more about what you're seeing on, on YouTube. W- what's the source of the information that well, often, you're getting there? Well, often it's very, it's varying people who have uh, knowledge or have history behind them uh, from various uh, universities. Uh, that and also the testimony. There's a lot of testimony that mm-hmm. occurred. Uh, during and after the assassination of JFK, there's just a stay right there. Yeah. It's been over 50 years, and it's quite obvious that uh, there was not a lone assassin. Uh, there was a conspiracy. Uh, there were people in the government, including J. Edgar Hoover, met in, in Houston hmm. before. I mean, it's just a plethora of evidence to suggest that... Uh, Raymond, I really appreciate the call and you sharing uh, your experience with that. Uh, David Ludden, when you are talking with people who believe in things that might or might not be true, one of the most common things you hear from them is, well, I'm going to send you an article or I'm going to send you to this <laughs> website, just as Raymond is saying there about YouTube. Right, right. Um, talk about the ability for people to access so much information right now, and in some cases, yeah. false information, how that feeds and empowers conspiracy theories. Well, that, that's just that there's so much information available now nowadays um, that, that it's very easy to, to, to look up information about conspiracy theories, or, or look up information about anything, really. And, and then, of course, the question becomes, how do you evaluate uh, the, you know, how reliable that, that information is? And, and sometimes it's difficult. Uh, you might, for example, say, well, if it's if it's uh, on a government website, then it must be reliable. But on the other hand, if you believe that the government gets involved in conspiracies, then that's you're going to judge that as not being uh, reliable. Uh, so it really, it, it, I think it's it's it can be very difficult to evaluate the the reliability of a of a website, especially if you're like not a scientist or mm-hmm. like that, or, or or a scholar in that in that particular area. But I think sort of as a general rule of thumb is you want to just ask, um, if you've got multiple explanations for an event, which one is simpler? Mm-hmm. Um, and probably the simpler one is the correct answer. And, and, and I think the key word here is probably, right? Mm-hmm. Probably the simplest one is the correct one. That's really how science works as well when we have competing theories. Which one is simpler? That's, that's our, our uh, kind of our golden rule. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and I think that's the best thing that you should try to follow is say, well, this conspiracy theory is awfully complica- complicated compared to the other explanation. So I think probably that probably the conspiracy theory isn't true. Yeah. Uh, again, Raymond, I really appreciate the call uh, and you're sharing your experience. David on Twitter says, Many families who believe vaccines cause autism have recently gone through the major trauma of their child's development regressing to ASD, often soon after a vaccine. Many are simply trying to cope with that devastation. I want to mix a mm-hmm. call in here with that as well. Megan in mm-hmm. Pleasant Ridge, uh, go ahead. Hi, am hey. I on the air? Yes, you are. 
Okay, wonderful. Thank you for taking my call, Stephen. Mm-hmm. I was an incredibly pro-vaccination my whole life, thought it was selfish that anybody might not get their child vaccinated. And just like you mentioned, um, after multiple vaccination injuries, and I want to I make this perfectly clear, we as a country, as a nation, as a world, don't know what causes autism. So we can't possibly claim to know what doesn't cause autism. And as somebody who worked in the medical field for quite some time, I know how to read a study and I know which studies are credible, Mm -hmm. what makes them credible and what doesn't. And the studies at the CDC, who, by the way, owns patents on these vaccines and 75% of their income comes from vaccine awareness. So without that 75% of their income for vaccine awareness and the fact that they hold patents on vaccines, there's a conflict of interest there. Mm. When the head scientist of the gold standard study that they use, and, and this is also very an important point, it's not that vaccines cause autism. That is to blur the lines of what we're really talking about. Even the manufacturers of these vaccines say there is a potential for ens- encephalopathy, right. which is the swelling of the brain. The manufacturers admit to that. But, but so Megan, let's not call it autism. Let's call right. it the inflammation of the brain. And let's talk about the children's predisposition to that. There are some children. But Megan, but Megan, hold on. Yeah, hold ahead. on just a second. Uh, and I really appreciate your calling and sharing your personal experience. But, but I guess my question is whether you believe that the dangers that attend vaccinations and no one's I think nobody is arguing that there aren't dangers do you think those outweigh the dangers of the spread of diseases like measles or worse diseases I mean in all of these things what you're trying to do is some sort of risk management I think um, do, do you feel as though we should have a different balance there and say well uh, maybe these diseases aren't as, as dangerous as the vaccinations themselves. Uh, can I answer that? I would love to answer that. That's yeah, a great ahead. question. Yeah. Um, so I think in the, in the country right now, we're at just, we're hovering around 500 measles cases. And measles are nothing to sneeze at, no pun intended. But the, for the vast majority, it is a three to four week self-limiting virus much like chickenpox is. Now, but it was a virus that was it was a virus that was eliminated. I mean, it we didn't was a virus much like chickenpox that lasts three to four weeks and then went away unless there was a complication. If you hit brain damage, it is lifelong. And if you look at the numbers, less than so 500 cases nationwide versus one in 40 now. Many of them are African American males. Sure. Uh, Megan, <laughs> Megan, I, I want to get to I want to get back to our guest, but I really do appreciate your calling and, and sharing that perspective. David Ludden, talk about the the balance here, the, the the way in which we take all this information in and either believe things that uh, that that the facts support, or again, personal experience, of course, is such a powerful influence on. Mm-hmm the way we make well, decisions. Right, right. Uh, certainly personal experiences uh, uh, outweigh our, our ability to, to make rational decisions. If uh, you have some sort of traumatic experience that you have yourself, is certainly just going to dominate your thinking. Um, so sometimes I think we do need to just take a, a, a more rational approach as a society. I think society as a whole can probably be more rational than, than individuals are in cases like... Uh, like measles, because this is actually an issue that uh, that affects everybody. 
Um, I don't really want to get too too deep into this particular topic because it's not, sure. that I'm not that familiar with. Uh, but I would just say that that I can understand why people are afraid of, of measles vaccinations because it's your child after all, and you are trying to manage the risk to your child, but you may not have uh, the all the information you need to evaluate that risk. Mm. Yeah. Uh, again, Megan, I really do appreciate you calling in and, and sharing that experience. Let's go to James in Warren. James, welcome to Detroit today. Hi, how are you? Hey, how are you? Um, the, uh, the previous gentleman who was talking about YouTube, um, I, I kind of wanted to extrapolate a little more. Mm-hmm. I watch a lot of YouTube channels, especially like Great Courses Plus and like the Penn Museum and, and CARTA from the, uh, the combination of California universities about, you know, all sorts of topics, uh, archaeology, uh, the, the development of the human uh, uh, species, uh, astronomy, you name it. But with the way YouTube has its format set up, you know, they have that playlist next to what you're already watching that mm. just kind of will play. And if I'll get up to go maybe take care of something or maybe, you know, fall asleep and take a, a short nap on the couch while I'm watching something, <laughs> I have woken up and you're down the rabbit hole. I'm watching, like, you guys are touching on basic conspiracy theories. There is so much more <laughs> out there. People who believe the moon is a hologram, uh, not only is the earth flat, but maybe it's a donut. Uh, the the, the, the uh, heliocentric theory is coming into question now. That people are starting to say not only is the earth flat, but we're also the center of the universe. The sun revolves around us. You can you can either be watching incredibly great speeches and presentations by top professors <laughs> from universities all over the world, and Five minutes later, you're, you're falling down a rabbit hole. You're in, you're in a totally different territory. James, I really appreciate the, the call. You know, David Ludden, that does, that does get mm-hmm. to this question of, again, um, the, the, the power of information and the amount of information that's out there, but also the way in which uh, the, the, the holders of that information, the, the, the caretakers of that information, um, uh, supply it to people, right? I mean, YouTube is a really mm-hmm. great example of this kind of relational um, uh, feeding of, of information, right? You wanted to watch this, so we th- think you'll also watch this, and then you'll right. watch that. And uh, as James says, you're really far afield sometimes, not just from mm-hmm. the subject you started with, but from, from reality, <laughs> right. Well, of course, those are the computer algorithms that are just, you know, looking at keywords. Um, that that's just where it comes down to. You have to to be uh, a conscientious consumer of uh, of media. Hmm. You have to you have to really think about what is what is reliable. Yeah. 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 Uh, uh, again, uh, thanks very much for the call and the comments there. Uh, Brett in Ypsilanti, you're up next. Hi, uh, thanks for taking my call. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess what I wanted to comment on was from the kind of emotional side of this and looking at, um, I guess the research I've looked at is more on climate change, and I've looked at like the cultural theory of risk and cultural cognition, but it, it mostly says that, you know, people's worldview, their emotions, their kind of what what really charges them, that's what affects the way that they 
take in knowledge and information and the way they assimilate it into their belief system. And I guess I just wondered if your guest could talk more about um, and then kind of get the conversation going around that, because I think what's troubling from, I'll just say climate change, Mm -hmm. um, is, you know, you want to share information about the risks and you want to clearly communicate risks to people. Um, But what what the research shows is that no matter what you show people, um, it really doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things, because if they believe in something very strongly, and it has emotion attached to it, um, you could show them something pro-climate change, anti-climate change, whatever, mm-hmm. and they will still take from it whatever their preconceived yeah. notion was. And right. it will actually strengthen them towards right. their original belief, regardless Brett, of what you showed them. Right, Brett. So I, what do we do about that? I appreciate the call and the question. Yeah. David Ludden, uh, address yeah. what, Brett's say, uh, what Brett's talking about there. Yeah, your caller is absolutely right about that. We... We're not rational creatures. We're emotional creatures. Uh, uh, we, can, we can think rationally um, on occasion, but we're really driven by our emotions. And you're, you're, the caller is absolutely right that if you have a, a really deep belief about something, there's nothing that anybody can can uh, say to you or any evidence they can show you that's, that's going to change your mind. And this is true for all of us. But I think really the, be- the, the best idea is to just not try to tr- change other people's opinions. Um, uh, just uh, uh, kind of accept that people are going to have these <clears throat> these differences of opinion, and also uh, recognizing the fact that well, getting back to the idea of conspiracy theories is the reason why people believe in conspiracy theories is it, it, is it empowers them, it gives them the sense that that they know something, they're in the know, hmm. they know something that most people don't know, or they understand something that most people don't understand, and so this gives them power. And I think that you're going to tend to find. Uh, 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 people believe in conspiracy theories when they when they feel like they have a loss of power, uh, and this this gives them some way of taking back control. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> taking back control in their lives. Okay, David Ludden, professor of psychology at Georgia Gwinnett College, author of the textbook the "Psychology of Language: An Integrated Approach," and uh, maintainer of the blog "Talking Apes: How Natural Selection Reprogrammed the Brain for Language." Thanks very much for being here with us on Detroit Today. Thank you. Up next, Detroit Public Television debuts a new monthly show tonight that focuses on issues of the Great Lakes. We're going to talk with the host and the producer of Great Lakes Now. Stay with us on Detroit Today.